The Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There is a striking episode from early American history that illustrates the dangers of stubbornness and the importance of hearing the voice of wisdom. And it happened 21 years before the United States declared independence from the British crown. Tensions were rising in North America between the English Empire, the British Empire, and the French Empire. And these tensions came to a head in what was then called the Ohio Valley. And to assert uh, military command of North America, the English sent General Edward Braddock to push the French out of the Ohio Valley and assert uh, English control. And Benjamin Franklin, in his autobiography, actually refers to uh, this general, Ed, uh, Edward uh, Braddock, and gives the following assessment. The general was, I think, a brave man, and might probably have made a figure as a good general in some European war. But he had too much self-confidence, too high an opinion of the validity of regular troops, and too mean an opinion of both Americans and Indians. So before Braddock and his forces moved inland toward what is now the, the city of Pittsburgh, Franklin advised Braddock about the dangers of Indian ambushes. He told them that Indians do not fight in open fields like armies often do in Europe. They attack enemies when they were on the move. They would hide in the undergrowth and wait for the enemy to move into a vulnerable position. And then they would uh, attack them, surprise them. Uh, Franklin then records Braddock's reply to this advice. This is what Braddock said, according to Franklin. These savages may indeed be a formidable enemy to your raw American militia, but upon the regular and disciplined troops, sir, it is impossible they should make any impression. <laughs> So British and American troops, as they moved westward towards uh, Fort Duquesne, expected an easy victory. Many of them even expected the French to abandon the fort before they showed up. But Franklin's prediction, unfortunately, became true. And on July 9, 1755, as Braddock's men were forging a road westward, they were attacked by French and Indian forces. And during the chaos of battle, Braddock was shot in the lung, probably by one of his own men. He was able to retreat, but died two days later of that particular wound. And there was someone else present at the time who was helping Braddock, and that was George Washington, who barely escaped with his life. Braddock should have heeded the warnings that he received. He should have listened to the voice of those experienced in North American warfare. His arrogance had disastrous effects on him, his troops, and settlers on the frontiers of colonial America. And in two of our scripture readings for this morning, Psalm 55 and Hebrews 3, which quotes Psalm 55, we see the disastrous consequences of failing to hear God's voice. And especially we see what happened to the wilderness generation. The first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, who were not in the end allowed to enter the promised land, 
who were not allowed to enter God's rest. As Kevin has said, uh, we're following the lead of the lectionary this fall with our sermons. And for the five Sundays of October and the first two Sundays of November, the epistle readings are all taken from the letter to the Hebrews. And so this is sort of emerging as a mini-series, and this is our second week in the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews is a bit of an oddity in the New Testament. Of all the epistles, it's the one that isn't attached to a particular apostolic author. The others are connected with Paul, James, Peter, John, and Jude, but no author is indicated for Hebrews, and there's been a lot of speculation about who may have written this. Um, In the Greek manuscripts, the letter is simply given the title to Hebrews. And this is probably because of all the references in this letter to the Old Testament. We can probably surmise that the people who were being written to were uh, perhaps Jewish believers, or at least consisted of many Jewish believers. Uh, We see a lot, like I said, a lot of references to the Old Testament. They were probably being persecuted whether by uh, fellow Jews or by local authorities. And thus we see a lot of uh, exhortations to stand firm, to endure, to continue to recognize Jesus as the true Messiah, to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures, which are always anticipating something new and something better to be found in Christ. We see in Hebrews... uh, Uh, word about a better covenant, a better priesthood, a better sacrifice, and a better Jerusalem, the city of God. And so Hebrews 3, our passage for this morning, begins with an exhortation. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus who is faithful. Notice that phrase, you who share in a heavenly calling. The Greek word which is translated in the ESV as you who share is plural. And it can also be translated as fellows, associates, or partners. Well, who are they partners with? Well, to begin with, they're partners with fellow believers. But more importantly, if we consider the evidence of the New Testament and all of Scripture, they are partners with Christ and God. And last week we saw how Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth. And one way that Adam asserted and exercised dominion was to name the animals. So in the creation, from the beginning, Adam and Eve are partners with God. Creation is good, but it's not complete. And Adam and Eve are to be God's agents of fruitfulness. Right? The first commission. Be fruitful and multiply. They're partners with God to fill out, to fulfill what God intended for creation. Have you ever thought of yourself as a partner with God? Have you? It's strange, isn't it? Maybe not. We tend to think of partners as equals, right? Partners are equals. There's sort of a 50-50 relationship in a partnership. But not all partnerships work that way. Think of certain law firms where you have senior partners and junior partners. We are junior, junior partners. (laughs) Shrimpy partners. 
being a partner with God in his kingdom is a great privilege, but it also entails a great responsibility. And as partners, we have to hold up our end of the deal. Even if the relationship is, even if the partnership is 99% God and 1% me, I still have to do my 1%, don't I? That's how partnerships work. Another word for partnership, an older word, perhaps, is covenant, right? Covenant. There's no room for sitting on one's hands in a partnership. And in light of this reality, faithfulness is essential and a major theme in this passage and throughout the entire letter to the Hebrews. And initially, we see positive examples of faithfulness in our passage. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, you who are partners in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus who is faithful. In the early uh, verses of chapter 3, we see that Jesus is compared to Moses. And both are held up as being faithful in the house of God. Uh, The writer of Hebrews is referencing a passage from Numbers 12, where the Lord, speaking of Moses, says he was faithful in all his house. And Christ, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, is twice described as being a faithful son. But this isn't some uh, flight of theological fancy. There are direct implications of this for believers. Verse 6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. In other words, the faithfulness of Christ demands our faithfulness. The faithfulness of Christ demands the faithful response of God's people. And if you look at Hebrews, faith is never an abstraction. It's always about the concrete response of God's people to God's grace. It's about the rubber meeting the road. It's about Christians living and living in a way that has traction. Notice, too, the language of verse 6. If, indeed... We hold fast. For the author of Hebrews, faithfulness is not a foregone conclusion. Just as Moses had to remain faithful to God from the burning bush on Mount Sinai to his death on Mount Nebo, and just as Christ had to remain faithful to the Father from his submission to John's baptism to the agony of the cross, so too we must remain faithful, full of faith, from the moment God calls us to be his children for the moment he calls us home. This uh, emphasis in Hebrews pushes back against the revivalist emphasis on one-time decisions for Christ. Maybe you've heard that expression. One-time decision for Christ. Make a one-time decision for Christ. Yes, there are decisive moments in our lives where we do need to make big decisions. But in a way, every moment is a moment of surrender to God. Every day, we must make a decision, a conscious decision, to be faithful. Some days it's easier than others. But the Christian life is a daily reality. Give us this day our weekly bread, monthly, biannually. Give us this day our daily bread. Don't worry about tomorrow. 
each day has enough trouble of its own. There's a sense in which we are to focus on the daily reality of faithful living. There's no cruise control in the Christian life. There's no autopilot. Every day, every moment requires the deliberate choice to follow Christ. So Jesus, along with Moses, is a superior example of faithfulness. But strikingly, the author of Hebrews really hones in on a negative example. This is where he spends most of his time. A a negative example of faithfulness, the children of Israel in the wilderness. So in the second half of the chapter, the author of Hebrews warns God's people and uses this example of Israel in the wilderness. And he does so by quoting our psalm for today, Psalm 95. We saw last week in Hebrews 2 that the author quotes Psalm 8. Here he quotes Psalm 95. So if you have the psalm handy, pull it out. Look at it with me in your worship, God. This is a beautiful song of praise, a call to worship. We have two references to joyful noise at the beginning of the psalm. So for those of us who can't carry a tune in a bucket, it's okay. It doesn't say joyful melody or harmony. It says noise. And then in verses uh, 3 through 5, we have a beautiful description of God, his own... The, the, the fact that he has great power over creation, the scale of it, his ownership over all, from the depths of the earth to the heights of the mountains. And then in verse 6, the call to worship is repeated. And we have this wonderful pastoral imagery that we are the people of God's pasture and the sheep of his hand. That would be a good motto verse for Church of the Lamb, wouldn't it? Now probably most of us would like to end the psalm there, wouldn't we? If we were the editors of the Psalms, we probably would want to end it there because it seems like a nice poetic unit, right? Something that we could uh, frame, something that could be sold in a Christian boutique store along with fluffy sheep toys made from merino wool. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. And once again, Scripture thwarts our expectations and perhaps to our aesthetics, our sense of beauty. And we have something jarring. We're called to hear God's voice or else, really. There's a stern warning against hardening our hearts. And this is in stark contrast to verse 7, which portrays God as a loving shepherd. Here, in these later verses of the psalm, we have have God loathing a generation. That's a strong word, to loathe. And this is a generation that had gone astray, like sheep often do. And the end result is they could not enter God's rest. They could not enter God's green pastures. And they died on the east side of the Jordan and never entered Canaan because of unbelief, because of hardness of heart. Perhaps this psalm might seem at first glance to be a bit schizophrenic. But I think if we see it that way, we're not really fully understanding the true nature of worship. Hmm. Worship is not about the warm fuzzies we get when we sing about God. Worship is required. It's demanded. It's the proper response to God and who He is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. 
That's imperial image. That's all of creation bowing down to the power of God. Worship is about surrender, about submission, about obedience. And if we understand worship in this way, we can understand the intensity of the psalmist's words, the urgency. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The episode being described here is found in Exodus 17, where the people were thirsty and they complained. There's a lot of griping and complaining in the wilderness. We're not like that, though, today, fortunately. Perhaps we've learned our lesson. The place that this happened was named Masa and Meribah, which literally means testing and quarreling, because the people questioned God's presence among them. And this failure to believe on the part of the people had many other manifestations. Um, and in the end, because of their failure to worship God, to ascribe to him the worth that he deserves, to worship him in spirit and truth, to obey him, they were not allowed to enter the rest to be found in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now for the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, this is not some lesson from the distant past. This is a direct warning today for the church. Notice the beginning of verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is present tense. The psalmist may have written the word centuries before, inspired by God's Spirit, but the Spirit is also saying these things now, today. And the words of the psalm then are a divine oracle spoken to God's people today. And so we have two choices when it comes to God and the salvation that he offers in Jesus Christ. Choice number one, we see in verse 12, is to fall away through an unbelieving, evil heart. The word in the Greek, to fall away, is where we get our word apostasy from. Apostasy, to fall away from God and the truth. The second choice is to hold firm and endure to the end. To fall away or to hold firm. Those are the choices that we face. But how do we hold firm? How can we do this? Obviously, it's difficult. It's a challenge. And Hebrews 3 is very clear that the primary way by which we hold firm is in community. In community. Notice verse 13. But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The church maintains its faithfulness in solidarity. It endures to the end in community. And this unity is possible because we share in Christ. Verse 14. We are partners with and in Christ. This is the same notion that we see in the opening sentence of the chapter. And this partnership is a beautiful, glorious thing, but it can be undone through sin. This is what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. And this is what happened to Israel in the wilderness. Notice, too, the time frame of verse 14. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. This takes us back to Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice. It expresses the urgency of Christian living. It doesn't say to exhort or strongly encourage one another often or once a week or several times a week. It says every day. We talked about this already. 
The Christian life is a daily grind. We need spiritual food and encouragement each day in the same way that we need our daily bread, food. Why? Because the dangers are great. And what are those dangers? Well, here it speaks specifically about the hardness of heart that comes through sin. And this language is once again borrowed from Psalm 95. I taught at a Christian university for about 10 years. And in my time there, I noticed something odd. The word sin was rarely used. It was an awkward, uncomfortable, and old-fashioned concept. It was sort of like a new S word. In fact, I heard the other S word, the four-letter variety, more often than I heard the three-letter S word, sin. We must continue to take sin seriously. In fact, we must be dead serious about sin. Because sin equals death. Death is not some random consequence of sin. It's built into the DNA of sin. It's genetic. James 1.15, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin, by its very nature, brings death because it's contrary to God's purpose. So don't buy the lie that the world sells. That sin is freedom, right? To do these things is to be free. It is, in fact, slavery and leads to death. And notice, too, how the writer of Hebrews describes sin. He talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. It seduces. It cheats. It gives distorted impressions. It lures into error. So often, evil is not an open attack on a castle, but the trickery of a Trojan horse. Yes, there are times when evil unfurls its flag and openly attacks, but more often it is sneaky and stealthy, flying under the radar. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon the disastrous campaign of Ed Edward Braddock um, and his failure to fully appreciate the danger of surprise attack. Sin often uses ambush tactics. It gets us at moments of weakness, of vulnerability, or lapses of awareness. It doesn't typically wear bright red uniforms with a white X on them. Okay, it doesn't march openly into a field to take us and attack us. More typically, it hides in the bushes, it's camouflaged, and it leaps out on its prey like a cat. The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do you want to enter God's rest? God's new creation? God's new Eden? God's new Jerusalem? If so, today, hear God's voice. 